Welcome to Crossroads, the broadcast ministry of Montgomery's First Baptist Church, where you can discover God's personal plan and power to conquer your problems through Jesus Christ. Join us now as God's Word heals, encourages, and enlightens your spiritual life. Come with me now, please, to an amplification of that message in John chapter 8. We're going to see the redeeming love of Jesus on display in John 8, verses 1 through 11. It may help you to find this little piece of paper entitled, Following Jesus from Condemnation to Transformation. That is always our goal. So, if the Lord speaks to you, capture that note on this piece of paper. I heard an interesting story about a woman named Joan. And Joan was wanting to get in a little better shape and lose some weight and be more nutritious in her diet. So she went to one of these health and fitness clubs, and she was assigned a personal trainer. Now, the personal trainer did something really unique. Personal trainer said, now, Joan, here's what we're going to do. We're going to re-architect your diet, your exercise program. And uh, in six months, if you'll follow this regimen, you will be a different person. But let me show you how we'll do it. So she took her to a full-length mirror. She had Joan stand beside that mirror, and this person, this personal trainer was somewhat of an artist, drew the shape that Joan should be in for her, for her height. And she said, now, Joan, you're not exactly fitting into that shape right now, but if you'll do what I say, in six months you will be transformed and conformed to this new image. Well, every week, Joan would come back, and she was doing what she was supposed to do, exercising the right food, and she would stand in front of that mirror, and she still had some bulges, but they were starting to shrink. And at the end of that six-month period, you know what happened? She completely conformed to the image that was drawn. Well, let's take a leap from the physical realm to the spiritual realm, because this is my sacred quest. This is my holy goal. It should be yours. I want to look like Jesus. Would you make this note? Our goal is to be Christ-like. Oh, don't settle for looking like your sainted grandmother or your sainted granddad. Don't settle for looking like Billy Graham or Mother Teresa or even Ed Cleveland. I want you to go for Jesus. The goal is to be Christ-like and to look like Jesus. It says in Romans 8, 29, Paul added it up so simply. He said, for those God foreknew, He also predestined or predesigned to be conformed to the image of Christ. Let me remind you that the name Christian was first given as a derogatory comment. People were saying, Oh, so you follow this Jesus Christ, so you're a little, a little Christ? Did you know the word Christian means a little Christ? And they were trying to make it a put-down. But the Christians realized that was an ultimate compliment. They said, bingo, you're dead on. That's exactly what our goal is. We want to be a little version of Jesus in this world. So they embraced the name Christian as their holy goal. Well, let me ask that you do a quick evaluation. Do you look like Jesus? Now, let me give you a checklist. Do you look like Jesus in your attitudes? Do you have an attitude of love, joy, and peace? Does that color your life? Do you look like Jesus in your actions? Are you a person of purity in serving 
In this world of takers, are you a giver? Let me ask you this. Do you look like Jesus in your relationships? Are your relationships wholesome and healthy and pure? Do you use people, abuse people? Or instead, do you lift people and encourage them? Let me ask you this. What about your reactions? How do your reactions reflect Jesus? Do they? I heard about this lady, and she was at a stop sign, and she got super angry because the person in front of her didn't go in time, and she started honking her horn. She rolled down her window. She started hollering and even saying ugly words to this person. And then suddenly she noticed behind her there were these blue lights of a policeman. The policeman pulled her over and said, ma'am, let me see your driver's license right now. She said, officer, what did I do? He said, ma'am, I see on your bumper sticker, honk if you love Jesus, follow me to First Methodist Church, and I figured this was a stolen car. (laughs) Okay, so how do you react when things don't go your way? You see, if you're a Christ follower, you're not overcome by the vicissitudes of life. You rise above the adversity to advance through them. What about your vocabulary, your value systems, your viewpoint? How do you see other people? You see, my friend, these things determine if you are a Christ-like person. So here's what I want us to do. Let's use John chapter 8 and ask that God draw the image of Jesus in the mirror of your mind right now and see if you conform to it. Well, let's plunge into this scripture, but just for a moment, let me, this is a moment of drama, and there are three groups of characters here. You can see this in your mind, I bet, but let me give you a visual. All right, so, so here are the religious people. They're mean, scribes and Pharisees, and they're trying to entrap Jesus, hurt him, and discredit him with the crowd by asking about a woman that they have caught in adultery. She is like bait in a trap. Many people think that the woman who was caught in adultery was the prostitute named Mary Magdalene that Jesus cast out evil spirits from. So here she is, a miserable sinner. She is condemned to die. And then we have the hero, Jesus. Oh, our Jesus coming to rescue and to redeem. With these players now in focus, come to John chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them, and the scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They were saying this, testing Jesus, in order that they may have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. When they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And when they heard this, They began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone with the woman. There she was in the midst. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. 
go your way, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Oh, Father. Uh, Father, help us to draw this beautiful image of your redemptive, merciful love in the mirror of our mind. Lord, I pray that you would get me out of the way so that your spirit could help us do not only measurements, but recalibrations of our spirit that we might conform ourselves to you. Lord, I pray that your spirit would deposit your transforming truth into every receptive heart. And I pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's what I want you to do in the next few moments. Ask yourself, who do I look like? There are three groups of characters. Who do I look like? Let's begin with number one, the mean and mistaken scribes and the Pharisees. The mean and mistaken scribes and the Pharisees. Let me give you a little background. There are approximately 6,000 of these characters that lived in Jesus' day in the region around the Holy Land or the city of Jerusalem. They were people who studied the law incessantly. They were bright people. They worked hard to keep every aspect of the law. They considered themselves the religious elite. They reeked with a self-righteous superiority, and they began to hate Jesus because he talked about God as his Father, and he was turning over their assumptions, and these people who were supposed to know and love God and follow his path they didn't even recognize God when they saw him. Instead, they treated Jesus with a mean spirit. They were mistaken. They kind of reminded me of, uh, of the, have you ever heard the story about the two Aggies? They just graduated from Texas A&M. Oh, I love Aggies. My uncle taught there for 40 years. And these guys had just graduated from Texas A&M with a 4.0. And they were going to celebrate by going to Disney World. They got in their pick-em-up truck. They drove to Houston on I-10 all the way over through New Orleans, and they got there to Florida. They turned right on I-75. They got down to Orlando, and there was a big, huge green sign, and it said, Disney World left. They looked at each other, turned around, and went back home. <laughs> now, what a crazy mistake to make to be so near yet so far away. That's what's happening here. These scribes and Pharisees, they were so near to Jesus Yet they missed him. And let me tell you the two areas where they made their big mistakes. Number A, wrong in attitude. Wrong in attitude. They had a mean, malignant, critical, judgmental spirit. They were self-righteous, and they reeked with a sense of superiority. Have you ever been around people like that? I mean, just almost instantly in meeting them, they gave you this air, this attitude that they are superior to you. Years ago, when I was growing up in central Texas, uh, there was a young man that moved to Georgetown named Malcolm Robertson. Anybody here related to Malcolm? Cousin, uncle, relative? Anyway, uh, if you are, I'll go ahead and make a disclaimer. This is a true story. Uh, so, Malcolm was 16. His mother and daddy were very wealthy. His dad was a big lawyer. He was moving from the memorial area of Houston, which is a very, very wealthy part of our nation. And they were coming to a little 5,000. Georgetown had 5,000 people in his population. And they bought about a 1,000-acre ranch very near ours, built a giant house on it. And his dad was traveling to Austin to do his law practice. And so Malcolm grew up to, right there in Houston, and he just had a silver spoon in his mouth. 
Well, he came to the Georgetown High School when he was 16. I'll never forget. He showed up, and we lived adjacent to each other, so I was trying to be his friend. But he showed up in a brand new car. Nothing's wrong with that, but man, he was so proud of it. It was just this gleaming Oldsmobile 440. I mean, it had the biggest engine you could imagine. And he was dressed to the nines. And you could tell as he walked through Georgetown High School, he said, man, I have come to the lands of the rubes. I mean, these are hayseeds. These are country folks. These are rubes. What have I done? And you could just sense that he had that self-righteous superiority about him. I mean, in those days, you remember Izod's? They had, he had an Izod on everything. He had an Izod shirt. He had Izod pants, Izod belts. I think he had Izod underwear. I mean, he was just so cool. And, and he got there to Georgetown High School, and, and we were not. I remember even he smelled, 16-year-old boys are not supposed to smell that good. <laughs> I mean, he wore cologne. And we had B.O. and cow manure smell on us. You know, we were just country kids. And there he was, just reeking with cologne. But he had this idea that he was here and we were there. That's what these people are. All right, let me ask you this. When somebody gives you that attitude of self-righteous superiority, are you just drawn to them? No, you're repelled by them. You're repulsed by them. Do you know this is the problem with a lot of the church today? You see, we live in a day when the church has almost become pharisaical. There's segments of the church that's self-righteous, critical, judgmental, condemning. Does that draw people to Christ? No, it repels them. So let me help you. Check your attitude. If you have an attitude that is judgmental, critical, and self-righteously superior, that does not conform to the attitude of Jesus as a matter of fact, here's a pretty good saying. If you have an arrogant, conceited attitude, conceit is the only disease that makes other people sick. Think about it. Okay, so you don't want to be in that category of making people sick and running them away from Jesus. So this is the attitude of the Pharisees. They had found this young woman who had made a mistake, and they wanted to crush her and use her for bait to hurt Jesus. So what does Jesus do in response? Oh, it's an amazing moment. He gets down on his knees on the ground, and he doodles in the dirt. We don't know what he says, but evidently he is probably drawing attention away from her because she's about half-dressed. She's trying to get herself together. He's a gentleman, and then he rises up, and he makes a startling statement. He says, whoever here that is without sin throw the first stone. Now, Jesus actually was the only one qualified to throw a rock that day. And he didn't throw a rock, but it says the oldest started to slink away. They made another mistake that day, not only a mistake of attitude, but would you make this note a mistake of action? They were wrong in their actions. You see, instead of slinking away, they should have bowed down. They should have said, Lord Jesus, we see who you are. We want to repent. We want to engage our faith, courage, and humility, and kneel before you. Friends, the Bible says in Philippians 2 that every knee will bow before Jesus. But don't wait to the judgment day. Do it now. Don't make their same mistake. The Scripture says in 2 Corinthians 6, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Well, let's go to this young lady, a miserable sinner, most probably Mary Magdalene. 
And Mary Magdalene was a lady who evidently was a prostitute. She sold herself, and she had probably sold her soul for some gain. But she has two features of her life I want you to note. A, she was seduced by Satan. She was seduced by Satan. We encounter Satan first in Genesis chapter 3, and he seduces another woman named Eve. He basically says, you don't need to trust God's word, Eve. God is going to cheat you. Instead, listen to me. Go my way. You see, Satan is a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a divider. And his purpose is in John 10, 10. He's come to kill, steal, and destroy. But look on your worksheet. He is like a prowling lion looking for someone to devour. Let me, let me tell you how Satan works. It's what he did with Mary Magdalene. It's what he's tried to do with me and you. It's very similar to when I go fishing. I enjoy fishing. And this is a, a June bug lizard. And the reason I have it, and it's got a beat-up look to it, is I caught the biggest fish I've ever caught with that lizard. Oh, I love this lizard. But you know what I was doing one day? I was out at a really good pond, and I threw this lizard over toward the side. Right? It was during the spring, and they were spawning. And there was this really big bass, Bertha Bass, I think that was her name. And she, she saw this lizard, and she thought this lizard was just going to be breakfast. And she didn't realize that I had embedded in this lizard a very sharp hook. And when Bertha came for breakfast, she became my lunch. That's what happened to Bertha. I just hooked her. And man, put her in the boat. And next thing you know, she started to float in the grease. That's how it works. You see, this is how Satan does to us. He presents us with something that looks good. It's alluring. Oh, you know, come on. Everybody's doing it. Don't be all fuddy-duddy. Don't be a prude. And the next thing you know, Satan has embedded a hook in this offering, and you're never the same. See, she was seduced by Satan. Satan baits you in. He pretends to be your friend, but it's death in the end. The Scripture says the wage of our sin is death. So that's the second part, sentence to death. This woman literally, due to Leviticus 20.10 and the injunction that an adulteress and an adulterer should be stoned to death to protect the sanctity of marriage, she was condemned to die. So can't you just feel Mary Magdalene's angst? She is thinking, I'm going to die today. This knot is rising in her stomach. She is thinking, what will it feel like when these vigilantes descend upon me and they beat me to death with these boulders and rocks? What will that be like? Am I ready to meet my Creator? God, I'm finished. But then something wonderful happens. This woman sentenced to death, and it does say spiritually we're in the same boat as this woman. In Romans 6, verse 23, the wage of sin is death. But friends, the other part of the verse is like the flip side of the coin. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So who sweeps in? It's Jesus himself. It's like here the scenario is you're in this worst imaginable jam, and who comes in to save you? Captain America. But here's a better picture. Mary Ruth and I were watching the new version of Lion King. And, and, and we saw this moment in Lion King where Simba and Nola had gone to the forbidden territory of the hyenas where the graveyard of the elephants lay. 
and they were about to be eaten by the hyenas. And who sweeps in but the Lion King? And with the roar of the Lion of Judah, he beats away the forces that are going to take their life, and he rescues them. And I just went hallelujah when I saw that scene, because that is the picture of our Jesus. The Lamb of God becomes the Lion of Judah. He is the rescuer for me and you. That's who he is. So I want you to see that Jesus, though we're sentenced to death, he is our rescuing Savior. Which brings us to number three, the merciful Savior, almost finished. What does Jesus do? Two things. Two things. Jesus redeems. Jesus flies in to the rescue, and that's why we call him Savior. I had a friend the other day that I met, and he was telling me his salvation story, and he said, I was at the very depth of depression. And Jesus showed up, and he pulled me out of that ugly pit and saved my soul. Maybe you could echo that testimony. But Jesus has done that essentially for all of us. He has rescued us. He redeems us. Ekrosimo is the Greek word for rescue and to redeem. It means to buy back, to purchase. It means to fix what is broken. Do you know an analogy maybe you could relate to? Has anybody ever watched Fixer Upper? You know Chip and Joanna Gaines? Oh, yeah, I see that hand. Some of you have even been to Magnolia, hadn't you? But Chip and Joanna Gaines, they are in Waco, Texas. And, of course, that's the home of Baylor University where I attended. And the number one men's basketball team in, in America is happened to be at Baylor, by the way. But uh, the Gaines have become kind of famous. And what do they do? They'll take a beat-up old home right there in Waco, Texas. It, it looks like it's just totally a wreck, and everything's rotted and fallen down. And do you know what they do? They use their sanctified imagination, and they redeem it. Redeeming means that they fix it up, and that's the before, and that's the same house after the gains get a hold of it. Isn't that how Jesus operates? Isn't he like Chip and Joanna Gaines? If you will give him the keys to your soul, he will transform you into his image. It's a before and after operation. And then one last thing I want you to see, not only does he redeem you, when the world counts you out, Jesus will count you in. But I'll tell you something else, he redirects you. In verse 11, it's remarkable. You see, verse 11 is everything. This is a picture of Jesus being love and light. That's the goal of God, love and light. You see, Jesus says, I'm going to rescue you, Mary Magdalene, but I'm not going to give you a buy on your sin. Your sin will separate you from a holy God. And here's what I'm going to invite you to do. In verse 11, it's everything. He says, I want you to go and sin no more. Well, if she's a prostitute, to say go and sin no more is like telling a hog to stay out of the mud. How are you going to do that? There's only one way. He is saying, follow me. I am the sinless one. I want to redirect your life to reconfigure it so that you look like me. Let me tell you a closing story. On the wall near the main entrance of the Alamo in San Antonio, Texas, if you go there today, you'll find a portrait of a man named James Bonham. Now, let me tell you James Bonham's story. James Bonham was born in South Carolina, and he was born in 1807. He went to the University of South Carolina. He got his law degree. He came to Montgomery, Alabama in 1834, and he opened a law practice just near the church here. 
But Bottom was a patriot, and he had a cousin named William Barrett Travis, and Travis said, we are fighting down here in San Antonio, Texas against Mexico. Would you come join us? He had this heightened sense of fighting for the right and for liberty. So James Bonham left Montgomery, and he went to San Antonio, Texas. And on the morning of March the 6th, 1836, he died defending the Alamo with 186 other freedom fighters against Santa Ana's army of 5,000. I have been a many a time to the hallowed Alamo. Now, here is the caption under Bonham's picture. Listen to this. The caption reads, No portrait of James Bonham exists, but this picture is of his nephew, Butler Bonham, who greatly resembled his uncle. This picture is placed here by the family of James Bonham so that the people may know the appearance of the man who died for their freedom. Friends, no literal picture of Jesus exists today. But every time people encounter an authentic follower of Christ who emanates his love and light, they see Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, Father, thank you for loving us so much that you left heaven and came to earth. To make thank you for sharing worship with us. We trust God has used this broadcast for your spiritual growth and encouragement. If this ministry has touched your life, please let us know. If you'd like to share in the cost of this broadcast, you may send your gifts and support to First Baptist Church. Your partnership with us will help strengthen and extend this ministry and will be greatly appreciated. And remember, when you are at the crossroads, follow Christ.